Hey, it's Mark. MMM's Healthcare Marketers Trend Report, released on March 7, showed that biopharma and med device marketing budgets took an 8% haircut last year. The average marketing budget fell to $7.6 million, down from $8.3 million in last year's survey. That spending level is a long way off the pre-pandemic boom times of 2019, when the average budget reached a peak of $12.5 million. Into this tighter budgetary environment, we're bringing you an interview with Justin Steinman, Chief Marketing Officer at data-driven marketing firm Definitive Healthcare, someone who, frankly, seems very well-versed in doing more with less, which unsurprisingly tops the list of opportunities for 2023. We'll bring you Jack's full interview with Justin and his tips for setting up a data-driven marketing shop and quantifying return on ad spend. And Lesh is here with a health policy update. Hi, Mark. Today I'll be discussing the train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio from a communication standpoint and what the aftermath of the incident means for public health messaging. And Jack's here with a healthcare social media update. What's on tap for this week? Hey, Mark. On this week's social media segment, we're going to be talking about the COVID-19 controversy surrounding Novak Djokovic that just never seems to go away. I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. So as I mentioned at the top of the show, healthcare marketing budgets were down last year, according to MMM's Healthcare Marketer Trends Survey, which went live this week on the site. If you haven't checked that out yet, you can do so at mmm-online.com. And although 41% of respondents said that so far their 2023 budgets are up versus 2022, it remains to be seen whether outlays will rebound this coming year. So, Jack, in the meantime, you spoke with Justin Steinman, Chief Marketing Officer at Definitive Healthcare, and Justin gave a number of suggestions for helping maximize those precious marketing dollars this year, right? Yeah, he did. He talked about what basically smaller marketing agencies can do to try and make the most of their dollars. Obviously, everyone is dealing with lean times in the face of high inflation and the potential recession that we're under. But he also talked about trying to get on your CFO's good side, which I thought was interesting coming from a CMO, basically talking about having better communication between your your marketing side and your financial side of the organization. Absolutely. Yeah, I like that. Uh, as well as uh, how to quantify marketing spend, mm-hmm. you know, and set up the right metrics. So without further ado, here's Jack's interview with Justin. I appreciate you being on the show, especially just, you know, given the reputation that Definitive has in the industry as being, you know, so insightful with the data that you have at your fingertips. And that's kind of where I wanted to position our conversation for the health care marketers in our audience Really wanted to get an understanding as we're here at the start of 2023, what you're looking at in terms of maybe the state of affairs related to data and healthcare, what sort of innovations we've seen, and maybe where we're starting to see progress um, on that front going forward with analytics. Yeah, so that's a pretty broad-reaching question, and I, you know, I think as we all look at the start of this year, I mean, there's no doubt the economy is tough right now. And I think everybody is feeling the pressure from their CFO to do more with less. And they're really making you justify all of your investments. And if you're in marketing, whether you're a chief marketing officer, VP of marketing, or, you know, just a demand generation manager on the front lines every day trying to reach your customers, uh, you're figuring out how can I get to the right people as quickly as possible and I guess that that word right is what's really important because how do you know you're at the right people? Uh, I tell my CEO all the time, hey, if you want a million leads, I can get you a million leads. 
they may not be qualified, but I can find you a million people who'll click on my email. And so the challenge is, is how do you find not that million leads, but the right leads that are then going to convert with your sales team into sales qualified leads? And the answer to all of that is data, right? And again, anybody out there, you can we all can get name, email, phone number, contact data. That's kind of the, the, the baseline. That's the point of entry. What's really important, particularly in this tough economic environment, is what I would call the contextual data, right? What can I tell you about the relationships? If you're a biopharma marketer and you are trying to reach out and get to the doctor who is treating the patients that your new drug uh, can help, right? Maybe you have a new drug, you're trying to get it to market. How do I find those patients? Well, you can you can pick up and say, okay, show me all the oncologists who work at Mass General Hospital. All right, that's I guess one way of doing it. Or you can try to figure out, all right, show me the patients at the Mass General Hospital with who are being treated with this CPT code or this ICD-10 code. Then show me the doctor who's treating them. Then show me where else this doctor practices. Is she downtown? Is she out in the rural part? You know, how many days a week does she practice? Does she teach at Harvard Medical School? What are all of her relationships and where is she affiliated as well as her patients? And then, you know, wouldn't it be amazing to know whether this doctor is a high prescriber, low prescriber? You know, do they like generics? Are they willing to work with, you know, biopharma companies as a clinical expert? It's all that other data, the richness of the context that I think is really going to matter this year as we're trying to figure out how to maximize our very, very precious marketing dollars. And I say that as a CMO who's being asked to prioritize his very, very precious marketing dollars this year. I think that's an all too universal point for some of the marketers in our audience is just understanding that those budgets are usually the ones that get slashed anytime there's any sort of an economic downturn. But I think they would benefit from hearing from you, Justin, just any sort of examples that you can give us in terms of how data can combat these challenges and you know anything maybe that you've even done in your own work to kind of remedy these issues that may seem you know so overwhelming at times. But there are answers out there or at least you know uh, solutions that you can uh, fall back on. There are. And I assume you want me to talk more about kind of explaining the value to your CFO of how marketing works and how to prove the value and metrics, right? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So, you know, one of my old bosses many, many years ago had, had a great trick. He's a very inspirational CMO. I'll give him a shot. His name is John Dragoon. And he used to say, you know, Justin, marketing is so much more than fonts and colors. Let me tell you why. Right. And don't get me wrong, the fonts and colors and the graphics, that's fun. But if you're going to go and be a successful marketer in today's day and age, you've got to be every good as bit with the numbers as you are with the product positioning and the value proposition, the differentiators and the graphics and the webs and the fun stuff of all the creative side of things. And so what we've done here, and in fact, it was the very first thing that I did when I joined here about two and a half years ago, is we've put together a very detailed waterfall funnel, right? And we track our market and qualified leads, the number of people who actually interact with meeting with us. It's not just you come to our website. It's you've downloaded it, a white paper, you've given, you've clicked on our, give me a free trial button. You've volunteered your contact information. And based on our scoring system, you seem legit. From there, we hand that off to our inside sales team. And then we look at the number of marketing qualified leads that translate to a demo, right? And I generally, depending on the segment, I like that to be somewhere between 40 to 60%. Uh, 
you know, obviously for some segments it should be higher, some are lower. And that, I, again, I vary that and I have targets. And I actually can tell you on a monthly basis uh, by segment how many of those MQLs are translating down to demos. From a demo, I then go ahead and say, does that qualify to a sales qualified lead, an SQL, right? Because again, maybe you get someone to demo their tire kicker, a lot of tire kickers out there. Uh, and again, if I'm generating a lot of demo traffic for my ISRs and they're not converting to sales, then again, I'm wasting their time. From the sales qualified lead, the salesperson has to assign a pipeline dollar to that deal. I think as you know, Joe sales guy, that I can close this deal for $50,000, $100,000, $200,000, going to sell them these six products, these three products, whatever it is. And then we track the number of wins that come out of it and the dollars won. And I have a handshake agreement with our chief revenue officer of what metrics my team is going to deliver for every single one of those things on the waterfall by month. And then we report on it weekly how we're doing to that month. And I published that dashboard uh, on our executive leadership team, uh, SharePoint, frankly, and our CFO is regularly known to go into that and look at that dashboard. Uh, And then we talk about it. And the other thing that we're doing, again, to kind of prove all of it, is we track cost at every single one of those levels. Cost per MQL, cost per demo, cost per sales qualified lead, cost per win. And so I can do a trending chart month over month, how my costs are doing, you know, what are we doing, which channels are more effective, which channels are less effective, and ultimately, you know, how am I doing year over year? Am I generating more leads year over year? What's my return year over year? And how I'm doing against those targets? And so the moral of the story here is if you're working in marketing, you've got to be able to have that conversation with your finance partner, whatever the level of the organization is, to help justify the value of what you're doing and help them understand it. I'm curious just because you've talked about kind of having that open line of communication. I think it's, you know, I've, I've spoken to enough CFOs in my time that there is always that room for improvement between how CFOs and the marketing team or CFOs on the clinical side communicate with each other. But as it relates to marketing, I'm curious maybe if what are some of the bigger misconceptions around marketing in, in terms of healthcare? Because I think to your point, a lot of people can just say, oh yeah, it's just graphics or it's just promoting or it's just that. But there's so much more work that goes into it. And I think our audience understands that, but maybe they have a harder time kind of communicating that to people that may not understand that. Yeah, I think, you know, the biggest miscommunication about, or misperception about marketing is that it's easy that anybody could do it, right? Uh, and at some level, I guess we all could. We all watch TV. We're all marketed to. We all see things. So, oh, yeah, we can do a value proposition. How hard is it to get a lead, Justin? You know, and my favorite thing, can you just be more efficient with your marketing spend? <laughs> To which I want to turn to people and go, yeah, you know, I woke up this morning and said, hey, can I just put a match to money and I don't want to be efficient with the company's money? Uh, And I think that's the misperception is that we're just like not applying the same level of quantitative rigor that you would expect from an engineer when he or she is writing code. And I think the misperception is that uh, we are applying that level of rigor. The other piece, uh, I think the misperception around marketing is frankly how complicated it is to get it all to work. Uh, I don't have a lot of redundancy in my organization, but we have to service a lot of people. So I have a lot of unique skill practitioners. I've got two people doing graphic design for a $240 million company, right? I've got one multimedia producer. I got four people writing content. I've got one product marketing manager for every single segment. 
one demand generation manager per segment. And if any one of those people calls in sick, I mean, I can cover for a day or two, but there's so much specialization and you got to get the marketing jazz band all to work in unison because otherwise you're just not going to be able to deliver results. And I think people just say, oh, marketing, it's just easy. Just go off and do it, Justin. Yeah, we'll take our leads. Thanks. If, if only it could be that easy, as with, so, as with so many things in healthcare. Since we're recording this at the start of 2023, I kind of wanted to play a little bit of an exercise, which I know a lot of people do around the time of the new year, which is one thing to keep and one thing to go. And I wanted to apply that to the the framework of healthcare marketing. From your perspective, what's one thing that you would like to see continue or maybe grow in the new year? And one thing that you would just like to see if the industry could as a whole just banish the, to the hinterlands? What would I want to see banished to the hinterlands? Uh, let me think about that. It's a great question. Uh, I'll, start, I'll start with the first thing. What do I think should be continued? I think that, you know, there is a lot of value in uh, remote marketing. And I think the adoption of technology over COVID for the past several years has really opened up several new challenges, right? I mean, even you and I, we're sitting here doing a podcast, some of our remote podcast studios, you're in your home office, but we're able to deliver a high quality experience for our customer, our consumer of this podcast, because we're leveraging all that technology. And what I think is interesting is we now have more tools than ever to engage people remotely and capture wherever they are. So I guess what I'm really trying to talk my way to is I like the idea of meeting people where they are. And I think that's a trend that we need to continue to do. And that's kind of good marketing practice, but I think we have more tools to do that. Uh, what I would love to see kind of shrink down uh, is I'd love to uh, see a shrink down in kind of the level of noise, right? Uh, there's just so much out there and so many people are saying the same thing over and over again. Uh, if I were to say to you, are you interested in digital health? Uh, how many people, Jack, have asked you about digital health in the past six months uh, more, on a daily basis? <laughs> more, than I'd, more than I'd care to count. <laughs> exactly. And if you were to ask all those 3,000 people what digital health is, I bet you'd probably get... 3,600 answers to digital health. So I would love to give us to get away from all the buzzword bingo. Uh, and I tell my team all the time, you have to de-geek the speak. And you always, I always say, you come in, you're talking about our product. And, you know, I see this uh, client presentation. I said, if you're sitting with your wife over dinner, would you talk to her like this? And people get really interested in their feet and they're like, oh, no, I never talked to my wife like this. I mean, this is like buzzword bingo. I'm like, well, man, just write like you say, write like who you are and talk about it. So I, I tell my team all the time, de-geek the speak or anybody in my marketing team knows about the Tammy test. Tammy is the name of my wife. And so I literally turned to them and she's a school teacher, so she doesn't know anything about healthcare marketing nor does she ever want to know anything about healthcare marketing. But I turned to her and said, well, this piece of collateral passed the Tammy test. And so I think if we all can get away from buzzword bingo and talk a little bit about, you know, common language, that would be one thing I'd love to see us get out, get rid of. Since I'm still uh, detoxing from when I was at health at the end of last year, I can really appreciate the buzzword bingo <laughs> um, aspect of that. 
Um, Justin, I've really appreciated having you on the show. And I kind of wanted to close our conversation with, you know, just kind of a, an open-ended question to you. I'm sure there are plenty of healthcare marketers who are listening to this who may be saying, I want to be able to do a sort of data-driven strategy and may not know the first place to start or may not know if they have the resources or capabilities to do that. I'm just curious if there's any sort of advice that you would pass along to them, maybe if they're a smaller boutique firm and they're trying to get the operation off the ground, what would you say to them? I would say start small. Right. And I mean, I can sit there and be flustered, but buy definitive healthcare, but you know, we're not the right fit for everybody. We got good data, but it depends on what the problem you're trying to solve is, right? If you've never set up a funnel, you don't need to go buy Marketo or a HubSpot. You can do your first funnel as an Excel, right? And you can look at last year's data and look in your Salesforce or whatever CRM you're using and come up with your conversion rates. And put that all in an Excel spreadsheet and sit down with your chief revenue officer and your CFO and go, how does this feel? And what do we want to do? And then you want to track it in Excel. Uh, if you're a bigger company and you're a large biotech company or a large biopharma company, you've got more marketing budget and you've got more sophistication. I would tell you that this year the challenge is pick the things that are really going to matter. Right? So where can you make the difference and who are your target market? And you're not going to be able to do everything, right? We all have limited resources. We've all faced budget cuts. So what's the one or two things that you want to be known for? Because you're going to have to really take all your marketing dollars and time and effort and put it behind those one or two things that you want everybody to be known, to, want your company to be known for and drive that particular drug. And you can't love, simple, you can't love all your children the same. I wish you could, right? But in any company, You've got to prioritize. And if everybody in your company is happy with how you're doing marketing, you're probably not doing it correctly. Uh, somebody's got to love you, right? The GM whose product is your number one baby and on the front page of the website, she loves you. The GM who's like, you know, I'm just not getting, I'm not getting your A talent, Justin. I'm not getting, you know, your key product line. Well, how come I'm not getting the big spend? Well, because we made a bet over here. And it's important that you align on that bet with your CEO. So that when people do come and knock in and complain about you, you go, well, yeah, I told them to do that, right? Uh, so I think that's it. You know, start small, stay focused, and make a bet. I really fundamentally believe that, you know, you've got to make an educated bet because that's the only way to win in this era of tight budgets, uh, which hopefully will end by the end of 2023. And next year we're talking about how do you spend the waterfall of money that's coming back into marketing? We can have that conversation next year, Jack. I was going to say, you've now put it out into the into the universe that we're going to be on an upswing by the end of 2023. So I'm going to hold you to that and we'll have you back on the pod to discuss just that and any other, you know, any other lottery numbers that you want to throw out that we should go. God go willing, by. man. I hope so. I'm an optimistic guy. <laughs> well, Justin, I really appreciate you being on the show here, sharing your insights, sharing your strategies, and hopefully we can have you back on here sometime in the future. Anytime. It was great, Jack. Thanks for having me. Health Policy Update with Lesha Bouchak. A few days after the Norfolk Southern train derailed in East Palestine, 
a video from TikToker Nick Drum went viral. The video, which featured Drum breaking down what happened at the derailment site, racked up nearly 700,000 likes. This hasn't been getting a lot of coverage, and the coverage that it has been getting hasn't been very good. In the days and weeks that followed, misinformation about the derailment and the extent of the environmental health risks proliferated across social media, with many people seeking answers from TikTok influencers rather than public health officials. It exposed major gaps in the public health communications infrastructure and unveiled public mistrust in official government accounts, in some ways echoing the public health communications mishaps during the COVID pandemic. In a statement to MMM, the Ohio Department of Health said it was trying to counter misinformation by working with state and federal agency experts to share accurate information, along with testing results, potential impacts on residents, and available resources. Paul Simbanis, an adjunct assistant professor at the University of Illinois Chicago School of Public Health, believes government agencies like the Ohio Department of Health and the EPA are probably doing the best they can with their current technology and ability. But he added that such misinformation messes could be more preventable with better public health communication infrastructure in place, like improved technologies and a focus on two-way communication between experts and residents. It speaks to a larger issue that I think is becoming more and more prevalent of we need to really kind of help build our infrastructure when it comes to these this emergency communications, 911 services, other things as well. The upgrade technologies for everyone, not just for the areas that can kind of raise tax dollars. In my opinion, that's why I think two-way communication is important. It's not these blasts going insane one way, but people want Nito the way to feed back to, to individuals or, or agencies on well, who do I talk to if I'm more concerned about this, right? And, and I think that if we don't continue to provide the technology or upgrade the infrastructure associated with it, it's just going to get worse over time. I'm Lesha Bushak, senior reporter at MMM. Social media, Instagram, TikTok, TikTok, Twitter, YouTube, social media update. And this is the part of the broadcast when we welcome Jack O'Brien to tell us what's trending on healthcare social media. Hey, Jack. Hey, Mark. So we had a number of options this week of what we could talk about. We had Bruce Willis's wife pleading on Instagram for the paparazzi to give the actor some space in light of his recent dementia diagnosis. But we also could have discussed Elon Musk publicly mocking an ex-Twitter employee and implying that he was laid off due to his muscular dystrophy, a claim he walked back earlier this week. But instead, we're going to be talking about tennis. The controversy around Novak Djokovic's COVID-19 vaccination status once again continues as the tennis great withdrew from the BNP Paribas Open at Indian Wells. The tournament announced Sunday after his request for a vaccine exemption was denied. You may remember that since the start of 2022, Djokovic, who is not vaccinated against COVID-19, has missed the Australian Open, the U.S. Open, and five Masters tournaments due to his vaccination status. For its part, the U.S. Open called Djokovic, quote, one of the greatest champions, quote, of tennis, and said it was hopeful that he would be able to secure an exemption to enter the country. It's notable that Djokovic was not able to participate last year in the 2022 Australian Open due to being unvaccinated. As Stuart Frazier, a tennis correspondent for The Times, noted, the U.S. government said that, quote, its international air travel policy is stringent and consistent across the globe and guided by public health. Yet the U.S. remains the only country on the ATP tour that requires inbound foreigners to be vaccinated against COVID-19. In light of Djokovic's decision, Senators Rick Scott and Marco Rubio urged President Biden to waive the existing vaccine mandate so Djokovic could compete in the U.S.-based tournaments. Now, this is far from the first time that Djokovic has made headlines due to COVID-19. 
In the early period of the lockdowns in April 2020, Djokovic expressed resistance to the prospect of taking a COVID-19 vaccine and later released a statement saying he opposed mandatory vaccinations and wanted to, quote, have an option to choose what's best for my body. After he organized a tennis tournament in southeastern Europe months later, Djokovic contracted the virus and the competition was ultimately canceled. Though 2021 was relatively quiet for Djokovic as it related to the pandemic, the start of 2022 was anything but. Ahead of the 2022 Australian Open, Djokovic traveled to the country to prepare for the tournament. However, due to being unvaccinated, the Australian government canceled his visa and he was ultimately deported from the country. He issued a statement in mid-January 2022 saying he was, quote, extremely disappointed with the decision. That uncertain back-and-forth nature of the quarrel made headlines worldwide. And following the controversy in Australia, Djokovic told the BBC that he was willing to forego title chances due to his vaccination status. He said, quote, because the principles of decision making on my body are more important than any title or anything else, I'm trying to be in tune with my body as much as I possibly can. Similarly, Djokovic did not compete in last year's U.S. Open due to his vaccination status, though the U.S. Open said it looked forward to his competing in the 2023 tournament. Prior to pulling out of the BNP Paribas Open, Djokovic received a visa to participate in the 2023 Australian Open and won the tournament. Still, he publicly questioned the ATP and the Grand Slam for his treatment during the Australian Open, while also accusing the media of, quote, publicly lynching him. He said, quote, I'm an easy target to be the villain. That is how they portray me. For me, that is now a normal occurrence, but I will not tolerate injustice. Some things I can tolerate, some I cannot. They do not deserve for something like this just to be allowed to get away with it. So that's where the world of tennis stands right now as it relates to the COVID-19 pandemic and controversies that continue on. Yeah, you know, with, with the pandemic uh, kind of uh, fading and, and the Biden administration calling an end to the public health emergency, we've kind of forgotten, you know, how much we vilified uh, certain public figures, you know, for not getting vaccinated um, and uh Djokovic is kind of bringing that back into the forefront. I wonder how the, the par- this parallels with uh, Kyrie Irving and his kind of very high profile also refusal, although he was he was under contract, you know, um, and was, uh, you know, kind of sitting on the sidelines there where he's Djokovic is pulling out of tournaments uh, and, and potentially giving up you know titles and, and, and prize winnings. So I'm not sure exactly if the two are, are parallel, but it kind of rem- reminds me of that as well. But um, it's uh, not a great look for the sport. Um, and uh, obviously not consistent with public health messaging. And as, you, as we were talking offline, Jack, you know, it, it doesn't make sense anymore for the U.S. to be an outlier here and, and being the only country, you know, requiring um, those who live abroad and are coming in for these tournaments to have a positive vaccination, vaccination yeah. status anymore. Yeah, it's interesting because as much as, you know, I, there's been so much messaging about getting vaccinated and obviously Djokovic, as, as I uh, mentioned earlier, has had a number of controversies dating back to 2020 when he hosted that tournament that he got COVID and a number of other people got COVID, which is why they canceled the tournament to everything that happened in Australia last year. But we are at a different point in the pandemic. And while there may have been that call and that necessity to have a vaccine mandate in place as the numbers have dropped off, as the infections and the deaths have dropped off, does it make sense for us to be the outlier in terms of having that mandate in place that keeps him from competing. I think that's up for debate. I do see the parallels there as you talk about with Kyrie Irving. I think the same thing could be said for somebody like an Aaron Rodgers who, you know, has been defiant in the face of uh, COVID vaccine mandates and what that means in terms of their legacy, obviously all-time greats in their sports, but, you know, does that take away from it from a public relations perspective? 
perhaps, but that's also a choice that they've they've made. So it remains to be seen how this all shakes out. We've got, you know, at this point, six months until the U.S. Open. So that'll probably be the next major challenge in terms of whether or not he'll be able to compete in the United States unless he's looking to perform in these Masters tournaments, which take place all throughout the summer. Yeah, it's interesting. The, the examples here that have kind of risen to the surface are, are, are athletes who, you know, to be sure, are real standouts in their field. You know, mm-hmm. you talk about Aaron Rodgers, Kyrie Irving, you know, one of the best ball handlers of all time. Um, and, uh, and, and here Djokovic, yeah, who's, uh, arguably the best of all time. Yeah. One of them. One of them. Yeah. So I've always been a Federer guy, but I can, I can, uh, yeah. I can see the argument. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, John McEnroe fan, but, uh, <laughs> showing my age, but, um, we'll see in those intervening months, you know, it'll be interesting to see if, if the U S rolls back, uh, it's, it's policy, uh, in advance of, of the U S open. I'm always kind of skeptical, you know, when, when Congress and, and Congress people request these special exemptions, you know, for athletes just so they can compete. You know, it just smacks of a tainted influence uh, over, you know, what, what should be a science driven decision, but we'll see. Yeah. There's as with everything, politics will always find its way into any sort of controversy in this country. So indeed. That's it for this week. The MMM podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Gordon Failer, Lesha Bushak, and Jack O'Brien. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sohn. Rate, review, and follow every episode wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes out every week. And be sure to check out our website, mmm-online.com, for the top news stories in pharma marketing. <laughs>